Welcome to another episode of The Secret Sauce by Foodhack, a global community of food entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm your host, Armin Anatur. And today, we'll be hearing about one woman's journey from dumpster diving to starting a food sharing revolution that's now saved over 3 million portions of food. Thanks so much for joining me today, Sasha. So we met back in November 2019, where you actually spoke at the Foodhack Summit in Zurich about founding Olio. And I knew I had to have you speak again, um, as you have quite an interesting story dating back to your early upbringing. So I want to start there. Uh, today, you live in London, where Olio is headquartered, but you grew up in Iowa to what you described as hippie entrepreneur parents. Could you take me back to that time as a kid, what your life was like, and any notable moments that kind of stand out to you? I'm sure. I can't believe it's already been um, so long since um, we met in November, but thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, I do often let people know that I was raised by hardcore hippies in rural mm -hmm. Iowa. Um, they made up my last name, which is Celestial One. So I sort of preempt any questions about that by divulging my um, a bit of context um, from my childhood. Um, I was the oldest of six kids. I am the oldest of six children. Um, and my parents um, did start their own wholesale um, herbs and natural products and spices business. Um, and But for the first sort of maybe 14 or 15 years of my life, um, we we were not very well off um, and we had to work, my parents had to work really hard to make ends meet. So my childhood is um, filled with memories of, of following my mom around town and collecting things that other people had thrown away. Mm -hmm. um, so we were basically scavengers. So for example, if a house was being torn down, um, we would go and take toilet fixtures or wooden beams from 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 stair staircase handles and just anything that was of value, we take it home. Um, and we had a sort of year round rummage sale on our front mm -hmm. lawn and out mm -hmm. of our garage. I really was very embarrassed as a kid to have to, mm -hmm. you know, I, I self identified as, you know, relatively poor and, you know, found a lot of this behavior relatively embarrassing. But in hindsight, of course, it forms a critical part of, of my DNA. Um, and my values. And I, I just can't stand watching perfectly good resources, whether it is a toilet or whether it's food or anything else, go to waste. It just goes against sort of instinct in my body. Um, and I believe that for a lot of people, actually, going confronted with waste, it goes against an evolutionary instinct, um, which is to, to not let things of value. Um, you know, those are the things that have helped our species to, to, to thrive. Anyway, getting sidetracked. I am um, my own personal form of rebellion. I often say is to um, I left I left home. I went to New York City to become an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember how heartbroken my mom was that I crossed over to the dark side. But for me, I wanted to have a really financially and professionally secure career. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I worked along. I, I worked quite hard to in in, in risk averse roles such as banking and management consulting and MBA. Um, after a decade or so of, you know, learning lots of interesting things and working with lots of interesting clients, but never really feeling, you know, super passionate about what I was working on, I did reach a point where I had enough of a bulletproof CV that I could take a deep breath and say, okay, actually, what is it that I want to do with my life? Um, and then through, you know, a not necessarily direct path, I did find myself in 2015 after having successfully started another, a, a different, smaller business. Um, I found myself fully, fully aware of the fact that I didn't ever want to work for anyone else again, that really didn't care about money at all, 
and I could actually survive on a lot less of it than I thought I needed. And being my own boss and working on something I cared about was was worth so much more. Can I jump in here quickly? So did you always have these intentions to get into banking and chase a career in, in finance and, uh, and, and banking? Uh, it definitely wasn't that premeditated. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was very adamant that I was a straight A kind of girl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I only, I've only ever gotten one B in my entire life and it was traumatizing in language arts skills in sixth grade. And I had to spend every Friday night for the next term sort of doing spelling and grammar. Because of my academic achievement, I was always on the high potential path, which means, you know, if you just sort of follow the high potential path and you're good at math, you end up studying economics at university. Mm-hmm. And then when you're one of the, you're good at studying, you know, when you're performing well in economics, then the banks come and they recruit you. That's mm-hmm. basically what happened. Um, it definitely wasn't a premeditated Path. And also, I certainly had a few wild years mm-hmm. in there, which um, could have, could have, if if it wasn't for my commitment to to my grades, could have easily easily led me astray. Mm-hmm. How so? so? You want to delve into that a bit? No. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. <laughs> Just a rebellious streak that there was. I mean, I actually never graduated from high school, mm-hmm. um, which is a little known secret, not not so secret anymore. Um, I, and I, cer- I certainly. Um, went off the beaten path for a while, okay. but I was always focused on, on my, my school results and also sort of making sure that I didn't fall behind and close any doors. Cause the last thing I wanted was to have my options limited and then sort of be faced with, you know, what I didn't want was to stay in Iowa and stay living in the same, with the same level of uncertainty yeah. um, that I'd grown up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you had uh, about 13 years in the finance industry. You worked in Morgan Stanley, McKinsey, American Express. Did you enjoy this time? And what kind of key takeaways did you learn from this experience that I think that have uh, helped you today? I've always enjoyed solving problems. Mm-hmm. And in all of the various roles that I had, I was working with really smart people on interesting problems um, that took time and energy and thought and creativity and process for me of, of having a big woolly problem and figuring out how to break it down into different pieces and basically solve the problem has always been something I enjoyed. I wasn't always convinced that the problems were meaningful or worthwhile problems. For example, when I was at McKinsey, worked on some you know projects for large you know Fortune 500 clients, and I just thought, is this really the most important problem that you want to think about solving right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like how is this going to make your employees happier, make your company more productive? You know, so I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. Let me just yeah. put it that way. Same thing at American Express, filled with lovely, smart, um, loyal colleagues. But at the end of the day, there's only so much passion I could muster for you know, selling a premium, a, a premium credit card. Yeah. Um, other banks or to, or to individuals. Now, I love my American Express and mm-hmm. I get 1.5% cash back without an annual fee and they don't make that card anymore. But mm-hmm. it's not it's not something that I would spend my sort of Saturday Saturday night dreaming about the way I do, um, you know, just for pleasure now working on Oleo. So I think, I mean, I think it was a really important part of my network having, as a result of having had those experiences is very strong and it's yeah. been a huge benefit. As an entrepreneur, to have that to fall back on, um, having that CV has made it a lot easier, and those experiences um, a lot easier to have conversations with investors and persuade mm-hmm. them, them that I'm a safe pair of hands, and that I'm, 
you know, that I'm credible, that I know how to manage teams, I know how to manage, um, you know, large projects or large um, budgets. So I wouldn't trade any of it in at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I read somewhere that you actually had a quick stint as a campaign manager for your father back in Iowa. What is the story there? Do you mind jumping jumping into that a bit? He's running again. He's running again this year. Um, So I guess that would have been five, six years ago that my dad um, ran as senator, of which there are two elected for each of the 50 states in America. So there are 100 senators. Um, And my dad ran for senator of Iowa on an independent platform. And I happened to be have about three months in between the last business I set up and focusing on figuring out what I was going to do next. So I went back to Iowa with my toddler at the time and, and just completely devoted myself to supporting my dad's campaign. His website is still up and around somewhere. His name's Rick Stewart. If you look at his uh, his platform, you'll see that he's way, way far from electable. Um, <laughs> What's he campaigning for? <laughs> so he's like a massive supporter. Um, freedom. Okay. <laughs> Individual freedom. <laughs> um, he's a, he's a, he's a libert, a very strong libertarian. He's mm. now running again on the libertarian platform. He's mm. run for several offices. He did actually end up getting, you know, I don't know, like 2% of the vote or something, um, which is pretty, a pretty successful campaign, yeah. but mostly what I cherish from that, you know, it's not very often that you get to work under, under, under pressure with one of your parents. Mm-hmm. Sort of throw yourself into something, um, and my dad and I have always been good friends. And but that really was a just a once in a lifetime experience, really, to end with my dad. Okay, would you do it again? Mm, I, I'm. I sort of now. I've done. I paid my dues. Like mm. there's six of us. Another another child can step <laughs> up to the plate. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's take it back to 2013. You're in London and you're the VP of Business Development at American Express, and you've just been offered a promotion. What happened next after that promotion? When I was offered at that point in time, I was on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably about halfway through maternity leave, and I was offered. There was a reorganization as at Amex specifically. There was every 18 months, and my my previous role had required a significant amount of travel. I was responsible for 11 Northern European markets. I traveled every week. So I, don't, I was already sort of unable to figure out how I was going to make that work as a new mother. But my promotion would have involved even more travel. Um, and so since it was a change in my job role, um, I was able to argue for redundancy, which was mm-hmm. the most amazing thing that had ever happened. And you know, I've been at Amex for six years, so the package was relatively generous. Um, and I, I realized that if I sort of cut my expenses in half, um, I could buy several years of time without sort of draining my savings and my retirement fund and things like that. So that was a massive blessing for me. Um, I also at that time was experiencing um, like a personal, was struggling to find short-term childcare. Um, and as an, as an expat and also identified in many ways as a single as a single mom. Um, and I just didn't have a big support system. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I found myself going to the local gym where they had a crash um, pretty much every day and then sort of working out for half an hour, but then spending an hour sort of sitting in the gym and reading. And I realized there were so many other women, um, maybe fathers as well, but I mostly saw women doing the same thing. And I started to do a bit of investigation. And here in the UK, the childcare industry is fun, is is pretty broken, and I won't go into a lot of details. But I 
it dawned on me that I could create a business for parents who wanted flexible childcare on a pay-as-you-go basis mm-hmm. and, and not just at the gym because if you're at the gym, you can't leave the gym. You have to stay at the gym. But you, know, you want to be able to get the quality of nursery-level care but without the commitment required for signing up for a nursery. Often for sign up for a nursery, there might be a year waiting list and you only get certain times and days and then it's a very broken system. So opened, um, moved really quickly um, actually and I opened um, a business called My Crash just a few blocks away from me in Crouch End in London. How, how um, soon was that after you stepped away from your job? Oh gosh, like five months. Oh wow! I, already, I, I started planning it at the same time. Okay. From idea, yeah. from idea, from idea to open, it took six months wow. to open. You know, we had to find a, pro- a, re- a property on the high street. We had to fit it out. We had to get all the licensing. I had to hire the staff. Childcare is an incredibly regulated industry. So I had to learn all about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's among for for your listeners, but it was it was a monumental task. I had I, I roped in um, two of my very good friends. One comes from a social care background, so she really understood the regulatory requirements, just how critical it was to get that right. And then my friend, whose um, family has a sort of commercial property business, so she was able to find a property, negotiate a lease, outfit the property, and like think about the physical property. And then I was the CEO. I was someone that managed all of the business and marketing, et cetera. It was just such a joyous time. I actually, uh, my first hire um, who managed the crash was the manager at the, at the gym crash. Um, okay. who, and the reason was because not only did he was he ready to do something new and uh, capable of stepping up into this type of role, but he already knew all of the mums mm-hmm. in the local area. So since they knew him, when he moved over to our crash, we didn't have to persuade them that they would be getting excellent care. So it's probably the smartest hire I've ever made in my life, if I'm honest. Um, And that business became profitable in about nine months. And during that time, we were looking at additional locations to open. Um, And like the original sort of strategy was to open a network of them across London and then also sort of potentially franchise the playbook to other parents who wanted to sort of, you know, to open um, a crash in other parts of the UK. And it was actually difficult for me in the end to say, you know, I came quite close to opening a second and then a third location. And my heart just wasn't in it. Like my awesome. heart just wasn't in it. It's parents are really tricky customers. Okay. They're very demanding. They think about, they give as much thought and consideration to who's looking after the child for the day as what kind of car they're going to buy. You know, this is a, a very high maintenance customer segment mm-hmm. to focus on. And even though we were profitable, though, it's a like asset utilization model. There's only so much, like, if you bring in more kids, you need more staff and you need more space, you know. And I wanted something that was just more scalable. And also, mm-hmm. I just became so much less baby crazy, just, mm-hmm. just really less baby crazy. And I forgot to mention that even before my crash, Tessa, who's my co-founder of Rolio, we had actually started another business together called G Wiz Baby, which was also baby focused. Oh, okay. so at this point in my life, I became less interested in children significantly, except for my own. <laughs> um, and so Tessa, so Tessa and I regrouped then after the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took us after the campaign um, to, to do a really big step back exercise to say, we want to build something together. We know how to work together. We both are absolutely passionate about the environment. Um, and um, we know we want something that's going to be scalable. That was mm-hmm. just our 
for me, after the experience of the crash, I just really wanted something that was digital and scalable. Yeah. So, so that was, with the uh, yeah. sorry, with the crash, you ended yeah. up closing the company or selling it, or is it still running today? You, you are your friends uh, managing it? Ran, no, it was a five-year lease, um, mm-hmm. and we ran it through the five-year lease. Um, okay. At that point, all of our kids were in school and not using yeah. it anymore. Um, I won't go into too many details. There was an opportunity to sell it that then disappeared. But the reality is it wasn't actually, um, you know, it, it's a business model and it was turning over some cash, but it was, mm-hmm. it was a passive income stream. But the greatest value to us is that for five years, we all got free childcare, mm-hmm. which was worth hundreds, hundreds of thousands of pounds collectively. But the actual value of the business, even though we had, gosh, I don't know, maybe 1,200 different parents on our books, um, isn't wasn't what isn't that great because what happens is parents they only need you for a certain period in their child's mm-hmm. life before they go to preschool. So having a parent on your book who hasn't been whose child is now seven is useless. Like it's a constant acquisition. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so oh. nope. That was, a, that was a good learning experience. I loved it. Um, but it was not nearly um, as ambitious as how I felt. Mm-hmm. And then at this time, you and Tessa, you actually met back in Stanford. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So Tessa, yeah. I met 15 or so years ago, Stanford Business School. And then when I moved to London, like right after, we, she sort of adopted me into her friendship group. Um, and we've basically spent all of our New Year's Eves and birthdays and, and holidays um, together ever since. Mm-hmm. What was the premise of the uh, discussion to launch a business together? How, how did you come up with the idea to do Olio? Well, she's BCG, I'm McKinsey, and we did a very classic sort of um, market survey trying to, you know, we defined what criteria we were looking for um, in, in an opportunity, and we sort of mapped the landscape. Our hypothesis was that there would be some way to disrupt the B2B um, waste streams mm-hmm. um, and modernize them using technology, i.e. creating marketplaces for for products which can be recycled, but which are currently not um, being recycled to an optimal level or in the most efficient way, et cetera. So we spent a couple of months exploring, you know, visiting recycling plants, um, talking to, and not just recycling plants, but from thinking about metal recycling. I mean, there's so, so many different waste streams. To cut a long story short, we actually gave up after quite an extensive search, which we did with a third friend of ours, um, who's now the CEO of Thinks, if you know who they are. But um, we gave up because we couldn't, it, it was clear that no, no one was interested in disruption. No one minded everything was being done on sort of pads of paper and like through faxing, right? There wasn't an appetite from the industry, which is also full of, you know, the demographic tend to be sort of older men who just looked at the two of us like, uh, you know, um, it, it wasn't well, it didn't feel welcoming. And we realized we weren't going to be able to disrupt global waste streams. Um, and so we sort of gave up, but right when we were giving up and we were ready to go back and get real jobs, but right when we were giving up, Tessa said, well, I did have this one thing that happened to me. Um, and she went on to explain how she'd been in the process of moving back from Switzerland to the UK. Um, and on moving day, she had some non-perishable food items, I believe cabbage and sweet potato, um, mm-hmm. that she wasn't, she wasn't going to eat them on that day. She'd assumed that since they last for weeks, that she could put them into her pack boxes, which were being airshipped back to the UK. And the guys who were packing said absolutely not, no food in the boxes. 
So she thought, obviously, I'm not going to throw them away. Um, she, you know, got her two small children bundled up in the middle of winter in Geneva and went out on the street trying to find someone to give the food to, oh, wow. which was an awkward and ultimately unsuccessful experience. <laughs> and she thought about knocking on her neighbor's doors because like these were, you know, it's like an organic whole cabbage, you know, it's like perfectly good food, but it just felt so awkward. And and so she just told me that story and we had the stereotypical light bulb moment, which is, mm-hmm. you know, there's an app for everything. Um, obviously there were people nearby her who would have been happy to have that food, um, but she didn't have any efficient way to communicate with them. And, uh, you know, a mobile app could easily overcome that by matching demand with supply for surplus food. Um, and that was um, in late January, 2015. Um, within the hour, we'd named it Oleo. Where does that uh, name come from? Um, I just Googled NM for hodgepodge. Um, and um, and Oleo is a miscellaneous assortment of things. We loved the sort of that it sounded aspirational. We, we didn't want to call it the food exchange network or something too literal. And we also really liked the O's on either side, which sort of symbolized the planet and the circular economy, um, et cetera. And nine days later, we incorporated and five months to the day after that, we launched in the app store. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's a load that went on during that time mm-hmm. um, to get us prepared, but we had given ourselves one year to, um, to get sufficient traction uh, to justify um, our sort of not returning to the traditional workforce. Both mm-hmm. of us are primary breadwinners in our family and that with small kids and, you know, but mortgages and things like that. Our appetite for sort of being a starving entrepreneur was very low. Um, and so we were working really, really fast. Did you create a business plan during this time? Did you go out and seek, seek funding or, or? No. No. Nope. We, um, we bootstrapped. Um, mm-hmm. So we each, put in, we each put in 20K and that was our budget. And then we got, we looked for a development, like a developer, like an agency that would, for a small por- part portion of equity, um, help us with the app build. Mm, okay, yeah. Okay, so you've got the name, Oleo. You've got the app and the idea. Uh, you, you launched into, this, into the app store. Um, how did you get the word out about Oleo? And what was the first reaction? Were people, did they understand it straight away? Or was there a bit of a learning curve for, for people to really engage with it? Um, Oleo is one of those things that everyone thinks is a wonderful ideas. Just, just so your listeners know, it's an app that um, connects neighbors to share food or in the beginning it was just food, but we also have a non-food section. So any other household items for free, basically giving away. Um, and someone, you know, when you add, when you, when you share something, so I, we just got a cat um, and he doesn't like a certain type of cat food. So I have three packets of cat food. So I, I just added that to the app. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Miriam requested it and I just hit it outside in my front garden and she picked it up. Mm, so okay. it's just, it's, that, it's, it's really simple. It's just giving away stuff that you don't want. And then people who want it can come and pick it up. And obviously because of COVID-19, there's no everything, you know, everyone has to stay isolated. Um, so we, I mean, we couldn't, especially when you're talking about a two-sided marketplace, you know, we couldn't launch without already having built up supply and demand. And, and if you, if you, anyone who's interested in marketplaces, like you need to, 
to, to source supply and demand behind the scenes and then unleash it simultaneously whilst keeping a very close eye on it so that you can manually um, ensure there's liquidity in your marketplace. So that means we needed users and we needed also listings. Those are the two bits. Uh, and then we needed to make sure that the listings were collected by users so people have positive experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so well before we actually sort of started spreading the word, we did quite a lot of market research. We did a proof of concept using WhatsApp locally. Um, but generally speaking, we had a lot of time um, and energy and, and very little money. Um, I mean, I joined, I must have joined 600 or 700 Facebook groups. Yeah. Um, this is before they clamped down on that. Obviously, I didn't join them all at the beginning. Um, another thing about a marketplace that's really important to remember is that, especially when it, well, Bill Gurley, and is, who talks a lot about marketplaces, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday on this, but if it's a purely digital marketplace, then you need to pick a niche in terms of a vertical. Um, and if it's a physical marketplace, you need to con- you pick a niche in terms of a geography. So when we first started, um, we drew a circle around basically five square miles from around, you know, one mile in either direction from where I live. Um, and you could only list if you were listing within that geographic boundary. Because mm-hmm. if I if it opened it up globally right away, you have one person listing in Turkey and one person listing in, you know, London, there's no way that that could ever be a positive transaction for either of those experienced both those people. So we picked it, we defined our geography. Um, and then and within that geography, we worked as much as possible to build up supply and demand for when we launched. That's everything from, you know, we tabled at all of the local festivals. You know, there's loads of, you know, street fairs and street festivals and things like that. You stood on the corner and, um, you know, stood in front of tube stations at rush hour with clipboards and free food that we collected from businesses that were throwing food out to people's name and email address. Um, critically, what we did is if, if anyone was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Because we would ask people on a scale of zero to 10, how excited are you about this? And if they said a nine mm-hmm. or 10, we'd say, great. Well, we can't do it without you. Um, would you like to volunteer? Um, and that wasn't premeditated. That was just in response to so many people saying, I want to help. Mm-hmm. And now we've got over 50,000 volunteers globally. So you can't, you, you have to figure out things as you go. We had no idea volunteers would play such an important part in our growth strategy. Um, but cut a long story short, we, we hand delivered well over 10,000 letters in to people through people's letter boxes, all in that area. Um, and so obviously we had to pay for printing and we didn't have to pay for much else, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when we, when we launched, we had several thousand people who had pre-signed up and we had 30 volunteers that we really believed would like they'd actually reconfirmed and, you know, et cetera. Um, and that meant, of course, before we launched in the app store, um, you know, we had all of those volunteers list three or four listings mm-hmm. so that when you open the app on the first, and then what we did is email everyone who had pre-registered so then say, okay, time's now you can download the app. So then they mm-hmm. would download the app. And then when they open the app, there's bounty to be had. Uh, let me just jump so, in there. What was the launch yeah. day like? Were you, uh, were you nervous that it wasn't going to work out? I mean, you'd put all this effort into it. Did you, was there any doubt in your mind that this might not, might not work? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Loads of doubt. I, I was excited, I think, more than nervous, but loads of doubt. 
out, but also we'd have, we really had had some incredible traction. Like we'd already gotten farther than we thought we would get. And we had done a proof of concept, which did prove to us that people were more than willing to walk 10 or 15 minutes to pick up some food from a neighbor that they'd never met before. Um, so, so I think, I think as an entrepreneur, like, of course it's easy to get crippled by self-doubt, but like who wants to live in that space? You know, like you got to be just constantly cheerleading um, because it's just a way more nicer place to, to inhabit. So I'm sure that if as much as you're spending all this time selling your vision and your potential to others, you have to spend that time selling your vision and your potential to yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, I just got off a call with Tessa right before this, and we're taking a little bit of the time we have now where things have slowed down a bit. Yeah. Not because Olio slowed down. Olio is actually doing great. But we just realized that we are having less meetings and we're, mm-hmm. you know, there's more time for reflection. And one of the big things that we're doing is, um, that Tess is leading on, um, is having, putting together a document called Uncomfortable Truths, mm-hmm. okay. where we really try and figure out what are all of those uncomfortable truths about polio, our traction and our potential that we spend a lot of time, you know, spinning or, you know, selling, you know, when you're talking to investors, you're talking to the press or whatever, like, you know, let's have an honest reflection on, on what those, you know, what those are. So you can't do that forever. But on that mm-hmm. day, on lunch day, absolutely, totally psyched and ecstatic, really. Mm-hmm. Um, running, on, running on fumes. Hey guys, real quick. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you'll love our private members network, Food Act Plus. Every Tuesday morning, we send a curated newsletter highlighting a key food industry trend or opportunity in the market, along with actionable insights to help you successfully launch, grow, or invest in your next business. To find out more, head to foodact.global membership and use the code SECRETSAUCE, all in caps, for a discount of your first year membership. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the podcast. So let's fast forward to today. Obviously, we're in the middle of a, a pandemic. Uh, people are um, encouraged to keep their distance. And maybe, you know, what impact is that having on your business that relies a lot on this person-to-person contact in the past? You said it's grown quite well, but can you jump a bit into maybe yeah. the numbers? Or? Well, so just... Just in terms of, so we're just about to cross 2 million signed up onboarded users. um, And they have collectively shared more than 4 million portions of food successfully. And we've seen food sharing take place in 49 countries, but it's really mostly the UK, Mexico, Sweden, and Singapore, Channel Islands, and in the Bay Area in the US. And and like I said before, we've got 50,000 volunteers, um, Mm -hmm. about about 10,000 on the supply side who rescue food from businesses. Um, that donate unsold food, and then they redistribute it through the app to their neighbors. These are our food-based heroes. This is also how we've monetized. We work with many of the largest retailers in the UK, pay us to recruit, manage, and train those volunteers. The remaining volunteers are um, on the demand side. They're spreading the word about Olio in their community. We send them hyper-local marketing packs. We send them digital marketing packs, and they basically love bomb Olio all over the place, online and also in real life. Um, and that's really been our primary sort of user acquisition channel. Yeah. Um, we've raised, you know, we've raised four rounds of funding and we're mm-hmm. a team of 30 people. So we've beaten the odds. Like we're in a really good space right now. We happen to have just closed a rate. Uh, um, we happen to have raised early because Tess and I were both superstitious. That, and I can't mm-hmm. take too much credit for this because it's just a hunch, not about the pandemic, but that you know, capital markets dry up because yeah. we've had, we've had just had been so long since the last recession. So we raised, we raised when we had well over a year's runway in the bank. And now we've, now we've got, you know, a good two or three years runway in the bank if we want. Um, so which is a really 
privileged position to be in, if I'm honest. And I feel really grateful um, to not be scrambling. And I know that a lot of people are in that situation. I feel just my heart goes out to everyone with all this uncertainty. So anyway, we, of course, when the outbreak um, for coronavirus came, like we didn't know how it was going to affect us. Um, and it's possible that we could have seen neighbor to neighbor sharing dry up altogether. Um, but the reality is we, ha- we haven't. Um, and actually, we're on last month and this month, we were pretty much on track to meet our target. Um, and that's because we've seen not just an outbreak of the virus, but an, a real outbreak of altruism. Mm-hmm. People are so, you know, we've been talking to people for a long time, like, wouldn't it be nice to have some community spirit and share with your neighbors? And everyone's like, yeah, that's lovely. I'll get around to it later. Mm-hmm. You know what? Everyone's getting around to it. Everyone. And people are making care packages for each other. People are cooking for kids who are at home um, because of school closures. People are using the platform to cook for the NHS. We've we've seen neighbor-to-neighbor sharing, even though we've restricted what can be shared. You can't share anything that's non-essential. Like, you can't share a shoe rack right now or a bottle of perfume. You can share food and household essentials only. But we've seen neighbor-to-neighbor sharing, I think, increase, I want to say, 21% um, Mm -hmm. over this period, which is fantastic. Um, And then... On the, on, the, on the downside, many of our, our, our business partners, including Preda Manger and Costa Coffee and a lot of the corporate caterers, they've closed, closed up shop. Mm-hmm. So that, the listings that would normally come from that food that's rescued has disappeared. But um, we've rescued twice as much food over our best pos- over, over, last week, over our peak week ever, because there's so much disruption to the supply chain that there mm-hmm. are warehouses and depots and but on the on the flip side, we've rescued an insane amount of food due to um, disruption along the supply chain. And so there are warehouses and distribution centers and manufacturers who've got large quantities of food that are reaching the end of their 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 shelf life. So I think we did a I don't, I can't, I don't want to misquote, but just more food than we've ever rescued ever before. Mm-hmm. is what's going on right now. Um, and that's coming through the platform as well and going to feed people who really need it, which is particularly important because a lot of the food banks and other, other sources, other food charities have had to close because mm-hmm. their volunteers tend to be elderly and they're at home self-isolating. Um, so, of course, we encourage our volunteers to volunteer for as many organizations as possible. But I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that a silver lining is that, that coming out of all of this, there's a real reflection from society as a whole about the need for um, at the individual and at the community level um, more generosity um, of time and also of of um, of resources so we mm-hmm. have more than enough food to go around you know we can feed every hungry person on the planet on a fraction of the food that is wasted in the US and the UK but meanwhile the average British family throws out you know um, 20 or 25 percent of their weekly shop and we've seen food through the roof as people have been stockpiling. Mm-hmm. Um, but now people are, lo- you know, people are losing their jobs and more people are filing for unemployment. And we're really in a situation where like the value of food and, and, the, and the disparity in our, between those who have it and those who don't is really visible for everyone. Um, and so it's not, you know, obviously I wouldn't have wished this circumstance, um, but it's not the worst time in the world to have a free food sharing app, I have mm-hmm. to admit. I mean, how was it to cope with this uh, increase in demand? You're a team of 30 people. You're now uh, forced to work remotely. Was it easy to, to 
Are you being a remote team previously? Yeah, yeah we're always remote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you changed very quickly to, to meet this demand and, and meet all the new health requirements. What did that sort of look like in the early weeks of the coronavirus? Um, can you take me into the kind of what the conversations were early on? Were you guys panicking? Or how, how is it? I, mean, we, I think we were certainly panicking. Yeah. I think the first of the three or four weeks, I was, it felt like I told Testa that it felt as full on as when we're f- fundraising and closing around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was 7 a.m. to 10 o'clock, you know, type of, of, because the last thing that we could do is encourage activity that might be bad for society. So we had to really feel comfortable in speaking with our food safety advisor, our public health advisor, in speaking with the environmental health regulators. We had to, speaking with our peers, speaking with um, you know, our clients um, and partners like Tesco to rapidly evolve our operating model to facilitate safe sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, from and 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 that meant pretty much like every day or every other day we were evolving our guidelines as the government evolved their advice. Yeah. Um, and um, and the good the good news is that um, we've come up with a really sort of we were on the we weren't behind we were ahead in terms of anticipating what might come next based on what was happening in other countries and asking ourselves, what would we do in this scenario? Okay, let's start to get the FAQ. Let's start to get the comms plan. Let's start to, you know, we were able to prepare, I guess. Um, but it was very quick flying on the, you know, work, um, flying out the city or pants, whatever the expression is. And, and obviously, you know, we, we have had to cut quite a few, you know, I've had to, I had to spend a good week just going through the budget. Mm-hmm. cutting discretionary costs, reworking our budget to give us even more runway in the event that we need it based on different scenarios. Unfortunately, we've had to take the decision not to like renew someone's contract. You know, there's a few things that we've had to do that have been very difficult decisions. And meanwhile, I think because there's been such so many people, so many layoffs in the startup space mm-hmm. and employees that have been furloughed, I think there was, you know, we had to consider, I needed to make sure to sort of wear the CFO hat I need to make sure that under different scenarios, we could we didn't need to make more drastic decisions to headcount, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, the team needed to be reassured that we had thought through all of this and that we were, you know, there weren't, you know, they need, their well-being and their anxiety needed to be be looked after as well. Mm-hmm. But um, but but over the Easter weekend, we we did a um, you know, we imposed a four-day no emails, no WhatsApps, like. Everyone has to, except for critical support, like customer support and stuff like that. But no, everyone needs to take some time off. And actually, just today, we've decided that people need to, you know, we need to make sure people are taking holidays, things yeah. like that um, as well. Can't save them up for the end of the year. Yeah. So what advice would you have for business leaders or, or founders right now to keep communication within the team open and, and keep everyone motivated and, and positive? What are some of the things that you guys might be doing? Well, I think it's important to recognize that not everyone is going to be able to operate at full productivity at home mm-hmm. um, and to have an honest conversation, especially if people have kids at home. It's just a different ball game, and to reassure them that, that they're not failing if they need to, if they end up only working six hours a day, and you know what, they end up, that's from six to midnight. Or, you know, I think that the, the most important thing is to remind your employees that their well-being comes first and that we don't look at them like robots um and like we're not we're 
and that there's flexibility and compassion there. Um, obviously, you got to have fun, right? So all of the teams are having virtual team lunches or virtual drinks and, you know, stuff like that, which I'm sure that teams all around the world are doing as well. The thing is, we're a remote team. Mm-hmm. So we there's a, a good blog on Medium I'm happy to forward to you that Tessa wrote like a week just right before the COVID-19 thing happened, which was how we are remote and what our best practices are because we get asked all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got lots of little rituals that are baked into running a remote team um, that are applicable for anyone who's now sort of doing it for the first time. Um, so it's, but the adjustment for us was significantly less. I mean, the main thing has been having kids at home um, and, how, and how that changes it. So um, the signal just cut. So I'll just ask that again. Um, you mentioned you're working right now with kids at home. What is that like? And uh, are you managing okay to the home life and the, the work life as well? It is challenging, to be honest. Um, and I think especially for the kids who miss that social interaction from their schoolmates, but just like the rest of us, kids are having virtual play dates um, and playing virtual board games um, and, you know, leveraging technology to stay in touch. Um, I think, you know, the hard part is when everyone's at home, all of a sudden there's like more meals to be made. There's more laundry, to, not laundry, but there's more cleaning to be done. There's more schedules to be um, synchronized, um, less Wi-Fi for everyone because everyone's using it. Um, so I think it's just a bit of a juggling act. Um, my son is um, quite is seven, and he's rather studious. So I actually have a hard time. Like he'll just sit and read books all day, and I'm I have to say, you know, no, you need to do some art, or no, you need to do some math, or whatever. Um, so I think I'm in a, a luckier situation than some. I think if you we've got a nice big garden, I did buy a trampoline, and we did mm-hmm. just happen to get a kitten. Just coincidentally, the Friday before lockdown, having a kitten and a trampoline has pretty much made it all okay. Um, okay. I, highly recommend, I highly recommend getting a kitten if it's not too late. It's probably a run on kitten. I, I think it's going to be hard to adjust, to adjust to normality again, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. It's such a luxury in many ways to have this time and to have all, this one-on-one time with my boyfriend and my, and my son. Mm-hmm. Tasha, you're an uh, extremely positive person. I remember when I met you back at the, at the summit. Uh, you really radiate this uh, positivity and confidence. How do you keep that up? And and, uh, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs right now that might need that extra kick at a time like this? Yeah, but my nickname for many years has been Pollyanna um, because I am just a bit of a sunshiny person. I think more important than ever, you need to not feel like you're alone um, and that you've got to, you know, for me, I've got, two founder networking groups that I belong to, you know, we are so active. We share everything, you know, it, not just business related stuff, um, you know, with each other. And I just feel it's, you know, it's like when you're back in school or university, you've got that group of that gang, that group of people that just know everything about you. Um, and so it's just really important to make sure that you have that network. And if you don't have one, find one. There's so many out there. You just need to find one and make sure that you, you know, that you participate, that, you know, you answer questions when other people have help, need help and that when you need help, you actually do ask. So I think not feeling alone by making sure that you lean into your entrepreneurial networks. Um, I um, Exercise is incredibly important. Um, I'm sure most people know that, but it's oddly, it can almost be harder to exercise when you have all day long to do it. 
So, you know, do it first thing in the morning um, and it does clear your head and, and give, you, give you run inspiration while you're running. And yeah, I guess just trying to remember that everything happens for a reason. And if, even if it's not immediately obvious, if there's hardship that's being endured right now, um, there will be lessons and insights later that will have made it all worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some great advice. And uh, today, Oleo, I mean, is a, is a great success. You're in 49 countries. As you said, 4 million meals saved. You've been covered in pretty much every media outlet. You raised 15 million from notable investors, including the ASOS co-founder, Quentin Griffiths, VCs, including Excel, Octopus Ventures, Quadia, and more. And you've uh, helped save, as you said, 4 million portions of food through the Oleo app. Looking back on what you and Tess have achieved, uh, do you feel a sense of accomplishment or do you think this is really just the tip of the iceberg? Oh, I'm hugely proud of where we've gotten to, for sure, because we had a lot of skeptics um, who thought that our free food sharing app was just a bit too not mainstream. However, it is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we absolutely need to get you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people stopping to throw away things that are of, you know, of incredible value. Like the earth does not have endless resources. We are spending our resources like we have three earths and we don't. It is completely just so scandalous that we continue to throw away perfectly good resources when they could be redistributed efficiently within the community lessening the pressure um, on the environment. Food waste is the third largest contributor to the climate crisis. Um, It's a really big deal. So we have huge ambitions. Um, We would like to, by 2030, in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goal 12.3, to have food waste by then. Like We believe we can play a really critical part in that. Um, And we we are definitely dreaming big. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I don't want to take too much of your time. I know you have a seven-year-old at home and you probably want to get back to that. Um, So my final question is, if people want to contact you and reach out, they're inspired by your story, is that okay? And where could they potentially contact you? What's the best place to reach you? Sure. So um, definitely you can just tweet me at Sasha N8. um, And I do sort of keep track of Twitter. Please don't use LinkedIn. I I get so many messages on LinkedIn that it's almost impossible to keep up with them. Um, and then if you tweet me, I'll send you my email address or the email addresses online as well. As that said, like, um, it's great to connect, but um, I do like to solve problems, like I said before. So if, you've, it's, you, know, if you get in touch, do, do bring a problem to the ta- table to inspire me. And, I, and then I promise to respond. Absolutely. Perfect. Cool. Sasha, that was everything I had. Um, okay. Thanks for joining me. I'm probably going to make a, a closing better than this. <laughs> we record okay, that ending. no worries. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was everything. Was there anything you wanted to add? Maybe that you would like me to re-ask? Just, or? Uh, no, I do have a three o'clock, so I'm going to go in okay. a minute. But just um, I would just encourage everyone who is maybe feeling a bit, you know, powerless in this current situation to realize that I have a lot of power in Palm um, or in our pocket. You know, we can use technology for good. Um, and it's the smallest acts that at scale will really change the world. Um, so I would encourage all of your users to just try listing some food um, and see what happens. Perfect. It's really nice fun. All right. Okay. <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today, Sasha. All right. Thanks for having me on the podcast. 
Thanks for tuning in to The Secret Sauce by Foodhack. If you enjoyed it, please give us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or share this with a friend. We have new episodes every week. Next up is Mohammed Shahin, co-founder of the virtual restaurant brand Eat Clever, sharing more about how he scaled his idea from a startup weekend to over 100 locations in 70 cities across the world. To find out more about Foodhack's global community of food entrepreneurs or to sponsor a future episode, head to foodhack.global slash podcast. Write to me at armin at foodhack.ch. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay hungry.